We're going to bring Karen up. She's going to read for us. We're back in the Gospel of Luke, or we were there last week. Uh, We're going through the Gospel of Luke, and she's going to be reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. So please stand as we give honor to God's Word. Luke 7, 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for this day. Lord, this is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We rejoice and are glad because the grave has been defeated and love has won. So Lord, I today I ask that you would, for those of us in here, give hope to the hopeless. Give restoration to the devastated. Give freedom to those in bondage and give faith to those who doubt. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Well, my wife and I, we love to go to the movies. And obviously with COVID, that kind of put a little, a little cork in our plans that we can go as often. But now we're a couple years removed from COVID. It seems like we can get back to our date nights at the movies. And one thing I love about the movies is the previews before the movie, right? 
Who loves the previews before the movie? They go in there with anticipation. See, like, hey, what's coming up next? I love that. A couple years ago, they had that, that plane was flying in that desert, and I was like, oh, what's this going to be about? And it turned into it was Top Gun 2 Maverick. I turned to my wife like, let's go, let's go. Got excited. And then this past couple weeks ago, we went to the movies and uh, we saw one for the Equalizer, Denzel, the Equalizer. So I'm, I'm stoked. We love, I love seeing those previews of the coming attractions. Well, this morning we get a preview of a coming attraction of biblical proportions, literally. And over the next three weeks, Luke 7, this chapter is going to answer the question, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And today we see that Jesus is the one that has authority over death. And one day, one day you and me, those of us who are in Christ, who believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, will be raised to resurrected life. Where sin and death will be defeated and will have no more influence on us anymore. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that coming attraction. I can't wait for that to come to pass. How about you? We live in a Genesis 3 world where there's pain, there's suffering, there's sin, there's agony, but we're on our way to a place. We're on our way to a destination, Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, it says there will be a world of no weeping, no tears, no mourning, no sorrow, no pain, and no death. Who's ready for that that day? Amen. Well, this, what we're at, is a preview. It it helps us look forward to that day, to that day when Christ will resurrect us to this reality. So let's look at Luke chapter 7, 1 through 10. First, we see Jesus' authority over death, healing the dying servant. Jesus' authority over death, healing the dying servant. Look at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people. And what did he just finish? We just looked at it in Luke chapter 6. It's the great sermon, the Sermon on the Plains or the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus had preached on the ethics, the characteristics of his kingdom and what it looks like for us to be kingdom citizens, how we are to live, the blessings, the woes, how to love our enemies, how to righteously judge, how to have our life built on the solid rock of Christ. So when the winds and the rains and the storms of life come, we will be unmoved because we are built on the rock. As after this, he enters Capernaum or Capernaum. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. So we have this centurion, this military leader centurion. He had about 100 men underneath him. He was one of the the backbone of the Roman army that was occupying Israel. And this centurion, this Gentile, this outsider had a servant that was sick on a point of his deathbed. And the centurion loved this servant. He had compassion for him. And so we see that he is actually going to send for Jesus. But before we do that, I learned something very interesting about centurions, about studying this passage. And here's a good thing. You never stop learning about good stuff in the Bible. Did you know that centurions, every time they are mentioned in the Bible, even though they are outsiders, they are Gentiles, even though they are the occupiers persecuting God's people, every time a centurion is mentioned in the Scripture, he is mentioned in a positive light. He is mentioned as a a man full of faith or a man who does and does well and gives uh, and as well does good things to God's people. He acts favorably to God's people. Think about when Jesus was hanging on the cross in Luke chapter 23 and the centurion looked up and he said, 
this man was surely innocent. And he praised God. In Matthew chapter 27, this same centurion said this, this is the Son of God. In Acts chapter 10, in Cornelius, a devout man, was also a centurion who feared God, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually. And it's here, really, in Acts chapter 10, that Jesus is, uses the centurion or to be the gateway to proclaim the gospel to the nations. He uses Peter through interactions with Cornelius. And this is true of this centurion. He's seen in a positive light. He's seen as a friend of the people of Israel, even though he is the occupier, even though he is the outsider. Many believe that he is what's called a God-fearer, a, a Gentile who follows after and worships Yahweh. So very interesting fact. Look at verse 3. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. As an engaged leader, as one who's responsible for the, the happenings in Capernaum, he knows also what's going on inside and what's going on outside. He hears the rumblings of this dude Jesus, this homeless man that's going around uh, the Galilee region and healing people, casting out demons, teaching with authority. He, he hears the reports. He hears that he's working his way through Capernaum. So he says, hey, I have a sick servant. I'm going to send for this healer. I'm going to send for Jesus. And so he doesn't send his own entourage, but he sends the Jewish elders, those that have favor with Jesus. He figures that, hey, I'm, I'm a Gentile, I'm an outsider, but if I send uh, his people to him, maybe he'll come. So we see this, he also acts in wisdom. Verse 4, and when they came to Jesus, the Jews, they pleaded with him earnestly. They begged Jesus earnestly to come and heal the centurion's service. He is worthy to have you do this for him. He deserves it. Why? Verse 5, For He loves our nation, and He is one that has built us our synagogue. This is a pretty cool fact about the, the synagogue here that He's mentioned. Uh, the synagogue actually ties Jesus and the centurion together before even this event. Because if you remember when we taught through Luke chapter 4, Jesus teaches at this uh, synagogue, and He actually casts out and heals a man who is demon-possessed. And this is the same synagogue that this Roman centurion built. He paid for to have built for the Jews. So that's a cool fact. You can actually have a picture of it today. We have a picture of this synagogue coming up, maybe. There it is. Boom. So this is the picture of the synagogue. This is actually the fourth century synagogue that Jesus uh, would have preached at. Actually, it was built on the first century, kind of that dark area right there is, the, is really the foundation of the synagogue that Jesus would have preached on. This synagogue was built in the fourth century on top of the first century. So kind of cool deal. That, that we're, we don't follow fables or fairy tales, but this is rooted in history. And so this synagogue that the centurion beat, uh, built helps connect him to Jesus already. Verse 6. So Jesus hears that, and it says that Jesus went with him. Again, now notice the reasoning the Jews give for helping this centurion. He is worthy. He deserves it. Wait a second. This is a, a Gentile. This is an outsider. This is the one who's occupying them. This is the one that's on behalf of Rome. He speaks on behalf of Caesar for Caesar's will in his way, not for the Jews' uh, purpose. And yet they say that he is worthy. He deserves it. And really for the past 2,000 years, this is how most people approach Jesus. Most people approach Jesus this way. Look what I have done for you, Jesus. 
look, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm not like those sinners down the road. Uh, they have this kind of this, this line between Mother Teresa and like Osama bin Laden. And they say, well, we follow somewhere in the middle. I'm not as bad as so many people. And I'm not as bad like Osama bin Laden. I'm a good person. Good works, trying to earn favor. But notice the centurion's response in verse 6. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am what? Not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is actually the correct response to Jesus, is that we are not worthy. We're not worthy to approach Jesus. The centurion understands this reality. He understands who Jesus is and correctly states, I am not worthy to, come, to have you come to my house. You see, the centurion represents the other way to approach Jesus. We approach Jesus with humility, not pride. We approach Jesus not, look at what I have done, look at all my good works, but we approach Jesus on His grace, on His mercy, what He has done for us. And so the question to us this morning is, how do you approach Jesus this morning? Do you approach Him through good works? Your good works? Or do you approach Him on what He has done by His grace? Do you approach Him on merit? Or do you approach Him on His ministry? Do you approach Him in pride and say, look at all these things that I've done. I'm not like those sinners. I deserve your blessing. I deserve your healing touch. I deserve the good things of life. Or do you approach Jesus with humility? With humility, recognizing that you're not good. I'm not good. We don't lean on our good works, but we lean on God's grace. We lean on God's grace. I got to remind myself all the time on this because my bent is through performance. My bent is through working for my reputation. And so is yours. That's part of the human condition. Again, this is the human condition 2,000 years ago. He deserves it because look at all these good things that he has done. That's how we can tend to approach Christ, even in Christ, even after bending our knee to him. We still have this bent to, to work and get on the performance treadmill to earn Jesus' favor. We don't need to do that because Jesus has already earned it for us. We need to approach Jesus with grace. So I have to preach the gospel to myself daily. In particular, I have to preach Isaiah 66 to myself daily. To this one I will look, God says. This is the one that God will look upon. This is the one who God will bless. The one who is humble. Peter says that, James says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's how we approach Jesus. We approach him with humility. And we can approach Him with confidence because He has already worked everything out for us. He is our King. He is our Lord. We don't need to be afraid. We do need to approach Him in humility, but we can approach Him with confidence. And so how do you approach Jesus? How do you approach Jesus? I love what Luther says, because good works are important. Following through and obeying God's commands are important, but that's not what gives us our identity. What gives us our identity is what Christ has done for us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Martin Luther says that even though we're saved by faith alone, our faith is never alone. There is good works that follows. But again, good works does not define us. God's grace defines us. So we move on to see how amazing that is, that this Gentile centurion knows how to approach Jesus. 
And the people of God, the Jews, don't. But what the centurion does next even blows Jesus' mind. Look at verse 7. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, underline that, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And then he gives this illustration. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. It's first time obedience when when the commanding officer gives the orders to the soldiers. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Children in here, today is Mother's Day. Today is Mother's Day. God has put them as authorities over you, right? So therefore, when they say, hey, son, can you go do this today or do that today? Guess what you do? Yes, ma'am. And you obey. Amen, moms? But not only today, but every day. Every day. All right. But we see that this soldier is under authority. He understands what the power of words says. The centurion says, when I give an order, people follow it because I represent Caesar. Caesar is the ultimate authority in this structure, and I represent him. And when I speak, people listen, and they do. And he probably perceives that Jesus is the authority in his structure. Because in Matthew's account in this story, the centurion calls him Lord. He recognizes Jesus as Lord, as the one that holds ultimate authority. So he says, Jesus, when you speak, I know all of authority of creation in heaven and earth is given to you. I know you created this word, this world by your word. So when you speak, things happen. And that's all you need to do, Jesus. You don't need to come to the house. You don't need to do a ritual. You don't need to lay hands on them. All you need to do is speak from afar and my servant will be healed. This is what marvels, Jesus marvels at. Jesus is amazed, is astonished at this Gentile centurion's faith. Because he understands that unlike the Jews that were following him, this Gentile understands who Jesus is and the authority that he wields. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. He says on turning to the crowd that followed him, mainly Jewish individuals, Jesus says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He says, Jesus is amazed because the faith that he should be finding in the nation of Israel is not found there, but it's found in this Gentile centurion. And there's only two times in Scripture where it says Jesus is amazed. Here, where he's amazed by the, the Gentiles' faith, then also in Mark chapter 6, 6, where he is amazed by the unbelief in his own hometown when he's doing here miracles and teaching. Jesus is amazed that his own people reject him and do not believe in who he is. And yet here he's amazed because, again, the Gentiles. What does that tell us? That means Jesus is a Savior, not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. He's a Savior for all of the world. It shows us the kind of faith, really, this Gentile centurion has. This Gentile centurion is a picture of biblical faith. That's what Jesus is amazed at. He's a, he's a picture of what biblical true faith looks like. And, and true faith has three aspects to it. And we see it in this centurion. The first aspect is you have to know something about Jesus. You have to know the message. You have to know the information. This centurion knows the information by calling Jesus Lord. He says, I'm hearing all these things, so I'm going to ascribe to you Lord. He understands who Jesus is. Not only does he understand it, but the second thing is, is that he believes it. He understands 
the information, but he believes the information about him. That's why he sends uh, the Jewish people of verse 7 to come and heal. And then finally he acts. He knows, he believes, and then he acts by saying, Jesus, just say the word. That's what true biblical faith is for you and for me. Do you believe in the message of Jesus that we see throughout Scripture? First, do you understand the message? Do you know the message? Do you know the gospel? Do you know who Jesus is? Then do you believe it? And then third, do you put your faith in him? Do you act on that belief? That is true biblical faith. I love what Spurgeon says about faith. He says, faith goes up the stairs that love has built and looks out the windows which hope has opened. Faith goes up the stairs that love has built and looks out the windows which hope has opened. Let me give you some hope this morning in the authority of Jesus. Let me give you the opportunities that you and I have because Jesus has ultimate authority over sickness and death. Just like here, Jesus does not have to be physically present to answer your prayers. He doesn't have to be physically present you just have to believe and make your request known to Him. To, to pray to Jesus. Ask Him for your needs. What are, you, what, what, what are you battling with right now? Maybe you're in a tense season of suffering. Act like the centurion by faith. Put those requests, bear those requests before the feet of Jesus. Walk by faith like the centurion. Jesus, just say the word. And it will be done. I have seen this in ministry happen over and over again. I've seen people walk by faith, believing in the authority of Jesus and Him just saying a word, sending their prayers up to heal my mother of cancer. And He's done it. You have experienced that too. You've had family members, friends that have been healed from sicknesses, disease, miraculous. They, their, their, their body has cancer all over them. Then they go back to the doctor and they see that the cancer is gone because Jesus has answered the prayer. I've seen marriages with no hope and the prayers have gone up to the, the authority of King Jesus and He's restored marriages. I've seen wayward sons and daughters who've wandered away from the faith and parents pleading on their knees, Jesus, bring them back. And He has. Jesus has all authority to meet your needs. All we need to do is believe by faith. Make our requests known and, and believe that Jesus will answer. And He does so more often than not. And so here's the picture of the centurion a man who believes who Jesus is with a humble heart, shows us his faith, is an example of faith for us, and that we need to cry out to Jesus in our time of need and watch Jesus work. Secondly, we see Jesus' authority over death in resurrecting the widow's son. Look at verse 11, 11 through 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him, and he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man had died and was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now this is the only story that in the Gospel accounts that Luke records. 
And just think about that for a second. I mean, as you're following around Jesus, how many stories, it says it could be volumes and volumes could be written about all the miracles, all the healings, all the teachings that Jesus has done. And yet this story makes it in. Can you imagine being an author and trying to decide, well, this should be in or should, this should be out? What should we write about? Praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit guiding Luke. And in particular, this. Immediately we have contrast of two crowds. The first is coming from Capernaum. Capernaum is about north of Maine. It's kind of south, uh, southeast, about uh, 25 miles. And so they're traveling south to Maine from Capernaum. And all of a sudden, this, this crowd that's coming just saw this healing of the centurion's servants. And there's joy. They're singing. They're loud. They're boisterous. Things are going well. And as they're coming into Maine, they're meet with another crowd. And this crowd is the exact opposite. This crowd, as they run into, is a funeral of a, of a young man, of a child. There's incredible sorrow. There's incredible grief. There is mourning going on. And look at verse 13. It says, And when Jesus saw her, the mom, He had compassion on her. He had compassion on this mom who just lost her son. We've seen Jesus battle Satan in the desert. We have seen Jesus take on demons and cast them out. We've seen Jesus show His authority over sickness and people laying on their deathbed, showing that He is the powerful, tenacious King. And here we see Jesus as our tender and compassionate King. We see the other side. This, this, this attribute, this characteristic of compassion is one of the main characteristics in which Jesus is described throughout all the Gospels. If you want to say there's a top three, this would be in the top three characteristics of Jesus that He has compassion. If you've been around the crossing, you have know and are familiar with this term compassion. This word term compassion is a very intense word. It means to be, to be moved in the bowels. The bowels is like the midsection. We say like in today's modern language, we, we, we feel it in our gut. Uh, when something bad happens, like, oh, my heart aches. My heart goes out to you. This is what Jesus is feeling as he sees this woman in this funeral and her son on this bier as he's being taken out of the city. He has compassion for her. Jesus sees this woman's pain and suffering. His heart goes out to her because really she's lost everything. She's already lost her husband, as it says, and now she loses her son. She's in a helpless situation, especially in this culture, because it was the job of the men of the family to provide and protect for their mothers and daughters. And if there were no men in the family, the women would be kind of open to all kinds of sin and evil. One put her situation like this, even though she is still alive, her life has already ended. She is in a dire situation. This is the context in which Jesus meets her and He has compassion on her. He meets this woman in her desperation. Her only son has just died. And notice, Jesus just doesn't step aside and let the funeral go by. No, He engages. He's the one that initiates this interaction. The widow doesn't ask Jesus like the centurion. The widow doesn't have faith. She doesn't even know Jesus is coming. Jesus is the one that intercedes. And this is a total act of God, of Jesus' sovereign grace in this woman's life. She's unaware of Jesus. She's not asking for Jesus. But Jesus sees her need and He meets her need. 
And this is just like Jesus. This is just like our Savior. I love how one says it. He says, this is how Jesus works. He comes to people who don't ask for Him. He comforts people who don't seek Him. He pursues people who don't want Him. He blesses people and saves people who don't deserve it. That's our Jesus. That's what this story is highlighting. His heart for those like the widow. And he does something actually unconventional. Probably wouldn't recommend this if you're at a funeral. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. Do that. Have compassion. And said to her, do not weep. Don't do that. Right? Don't do that. Jesus coming up to this woman in these actions saying, woman, do not weep, would be seen as the opposite of compassion, wouldn't it? Seem rude, unloving. But Jesus has authority over death, and He knows exactly what He's about to do. He's about to put on His compassion on display and raise this young man, this child, to life. Verse 14, Then He came up and touched the bear, and the bearers stood still. And He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Put yourself in this situation. What would have been your response? What would have been your response to see this dead man all of a sudden pop up the, the, the bear is like a stretcher, so you can see him. He just pops up. He looks at you and starts speaking. What would be your, your response? Fear. I don't know about you, but I'd be freaking out too, right? And that's the right response. I mean, again, he was dead, and now he's looking at you. And he's talking. What's he saying? Don't you wish they put in what he's saying there, you know? I have all kinds of things going on in my mind, what he's saying, but I won't share them with you, all right? But then secondly, not only that, but you're with and around the guy who just spoke and the dead man arose. That would be even more freaky. What kind of man is standing in our midst that speaks and dead men come to life and start speaking? He's right here. He's just as real as you guys are to me and I am to you. Fear would be the right response. And then there's a second response. They began glorifying God, saying a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited His people. That's a good response. Jesus is the great prophet, but He's much more than the great prophet. He is God in human flesh. And He is in their midst. And then verse 17 says, the report about Him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. The report that went around was Jesus raised the dead young man to life. He has authority over sickness and death. And that spread like wildfire. Well, how does this even more inform us this morning? How do, how do, what do we gain out of this practically? Well, there's a couple things. First, most of us have experienced this already spiritually. Uh, apart from Christ, we are dead men, dead women. We are, we are laying in the grave. Jesus comes to us by His compassion, by His love, through grace. He speaks the truth of the Gospel into our souls. Our hearts are revived and we wake up. And we can see clearly. Ephesians 2.4 says this, But God, being rich in His mercy, because of His great love, which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive with Him by Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Spiritually, you and I have already experienced this resurrection of life through the Gospel. 
but it's already not yet. We haven't reached glory yet. There's a future grace, and this future grace is what we're looking forward to. This is the coming attraction. This story helps us look even beyond our salvation, but look helps us look to our glorification. Listen, we live in a world of analytics and statistics, right? The analytics and statistics are, are all over us. And here's the thing about death. The death ratio is one to one. We're all going to make it. Everyone who is born is going to die. Now, in our culture, we don't like to talk about death. We try to avoid death. In fact, when someone dies, we don't say that they died. We say that they've what? They've kicked the bucket. We kind of play it down, right? One even said this way about death. He says, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens, right? We're, we're all there. And underlining those sentiments, those sayings, is there's a fear. There's an uneasiness about death. Right? But because of Jesus, because of this story, because Jesus has authority over death, because He has authority over sickness, because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death, we can still have hope. We can still have hope. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command, a word with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so we will always be with the Lord. Verse 18 says this, Therefore, encourage one another with those words. Encourage one another with those words. Encourage one another to the future hope. To the preview that is coming, that one day we will die, but we will be resurrected. That is not our end. And we are to encourage one another with the hope of Jesus Christ and the resurrected power that He has for us. It is a preview of coming attractions. Your resurrection and my resurrection. One day He will speak over you. He will speak over me in the grave, whether we're in a casket or whether we've been cremated. For those that are at the bottom of the oceans, those are on the mountaintops, He will resurrect your life, my life, and their life to a glorified body forevermore. This is our future hope. This is what this story helps us point us to. To look towards the resurrection. To look towards Jesus, the one that has resurrecting power and will one day raise you from the dead. This is our future hope. And I don't know about you, but that gets me excited. I want to address something this morning, since it is Mother's Day, and we see that a child has been lost. This is where we get real. This is where we get into the valleys. Um, There is no pain like kid pain. Right? Parents, we know this. There's There's no pain like kid pain. One of the most devastating things that could happen to a, to a family, to a mother, to a father, is to lose a child to death. Right? That seems out of order. The parents should die first before the children. Jesus knows this. This is why He has compassion, such compassion on this woman. This is why He has such compassion for us. When a family loses a child, many families spiral downward into despair. And it's difficult getting out. It's difficult getting out, the loss of a child. It can be brutal. I'm so thankful that here at the cross, we've been around for 13 years, we haven't had to bury a one-year-old or a three-year-old or even a teenager 
by God's grace. That's just his mercy here. But that doesn't mean we haven't had the experience of a child being dying. Several of our ladies have lost children here through miscarriages. And that can be just as devastating. But this story informs us. This story meets you where that pain is. We need to be aware of the devastation that this could cause with families. We need to show compassion just as Jesus did. And mama's in here. And dad's, of course. But mama's in here. I want you to know that Jesus sees your pain. He sees your devastation. And he has compassion towards you. He loves you. And this story is for you. I believe this story is a preview again of what's coming for you and for your child. That one day your child will be resurrected. He'll be raised, she will be raised from the dead to eternal joy and blessing forevermore with Jesus, but also with you if you're in Christ. Look at verse 15. It says, And Jesus gave him to his mother. That's the hope that you have because of this passage. You have that hope. That one day, that day when Jesus speaks and has authority over death and raises you, he will raise that child and he will reunite you with your child. I know the pain can seem unbearable at times, but because of Jesus' resurrection, because of his power over death, we do not mourn like those who have no hope. You and I, we have hope because we have Christ. So let this story encourage you today. And I want to end with a quote for everyone and a thought. Thinking about death. Ask yourself this question. Do you have a philosophy of life that can cope with death? Do you have a philosophy of life that can cope with death? As Christians, you and I can say yes. Humbly and with great joy because Jesus Christ has the authority over death. And we know one day we will be raised with him. If you're in here and you haven't bowed your knee to King Jesus, or you're not a Christian, we would plead with you today to repent and exercise faith in Jesus, in His life that was lived perfectly in your place, His death that He died on the cross for your death. He paid the penalty in His resurrection. That can be your hope today as well. Does your philosophy of life, can it cope with death? And again, as Christians, one day we will experience the full power of King Jesus' resurrected power in our lives. That's the coming attraction. That's the preview. And today, that should get you excited about what's coming. Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection was the first fruits of what our life will soon become. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this story. We see faith in an unexpected place from a Gentile centurion. 
from an outsider who is now being an insider because of your grace and mercy. And then we've seen the power of the resurrected Christ. The power and the authority that you wield with your words by raising this widow's son to life. Lord, may that bring us hope and joy today, even in the midst of much suffering around death. Whether it's a miscarriage or a death of a loved one, Lord, death is real. But we do not mourn like those with no hope. We have ultimate hope. We have ultimate security because you were buried and you were raised three days later to prove that you were the true King of kings and Lord of lords, that you do hold life. And as you speak, life is granted to us. And one day we will be resurrected with you forevermore to a world where there is no sin, there is no mourning, there is no death, but only ultimate joy with those who are in Christ Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.